Hello, OpStars. I'm Ashley, producer at the OpStars podcast. We hope you'll join us and the rest of the community at the 7th Annual OpStars Conference on September 21st and 22nd in San Francisco during Dreamforce. We've been virtual the last two years, but we are so excited to be back in person at the San Francisco Mint this year. Go to ops-stars.com to find out more about the speakers, sessions, and click on register now to join us. And by the way, it's free. I hope to see you there. You as a revenue operations professional should be at the level where you understand what they need to see in that top level dashboard. And if you don't, Google it. But it's not rocket science. The hard part is not building the reports and dashboards they need. The hard part is getting everybody to agree on what the measurements actually are. Welcome to the OpStars podcast. We host authentic conversations with revenue operations professionals running the show behind the scenes holding things together, doing whatever it takes to innovate to solve problems, build processes, and manage the data to build a modern revenue engine that powers a great buyer experience. I'm your host, Rachel McBrearty. Thank you for joining us today for the OpStars podcast. I'm your host, Rachel McBrearty. Our special guest today is Greg Poirier, the founder and CEO of CloudKettle. Cloud Kettle is a consultancy that specializes in helping organizations to improve revenue operations. From demand gen through renewals, you help manage the growth of billions in sales pipelines for your clients. You're also a sought-after advisor and speaker. Your accolades include EY Entrepreneur of the Year in 2018 and the Atlantic Business Top 50 CEOs. Very impressive resume. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to start Cloud Kettle. Sure. I mean, I started using Salesforce, which is what many organizations consider to be their reps office machine. Well over a decade ago, I worked at a large national cinema chain and I had to sync three computers, which was our sales database every morning for three different users. I recommended this new cloud solution and that solution was Salesforce. There was something there that I thought could make us as salespeople more efficient. And then at the same time, I was also overseeing our newsletter, which we had a couple of hundred thousand subscribers. And the only solution on the market at that time that could effectively handle that volume of segmentations we wanted was the exact target, which is eventually what Cloud, or what Salesforce bought, which is the backbone of marketing cloud. And so very coincidentally, I got to use both those solutions. And then I was recruited by a fast-growing local startup called Radiant 6. And the role was essentially what people would call marketing operations now, although it didn't have a fancy name back then. And at Radiant 6, uh, I also got to use a solution called Pardot. And we did a lot of what would now be called marketing operations work, integrating Google Analytics and advertising data with Salesforce data and doing all these things by hand and with heavy coding and development. And then eventually, uh, Radiant 6 got acquired by Salesforce. So conveniently for me, that, that platform uh, that I was really passionate about using uh, ended up being where I worked. And so I got to do a lot more of that. And also very conveniently for me, they acquired Exact Target Pardot, which were two solutions I was using heavily as well. So then after that, I kind of turned out and decided I wanted to go work at a smaller company. So I went and did a very similar marketing operations, sales operations role at two B2B SaaS startups. I was very passionate about that space and eventually became COO of the last one and decided I wanted to move on to just focusing on revenue operations and not have to deal with being C CEO of the company anymore. 
So that was the foundation of Cloud Dental was Greg wanted to go and build really amazing marketing operations and sales operations machines for large enterprises. That was the foundation of Cloud Kettle. And yeah, it's just grown from there. So a question obviously have come up through an understanding of all the technology and how all of this works together. How much of what you do is advising on how to get the tech stack organized versus the revenue processes? What's the balance? That's a good question. I mean, it depends if we're talking about Greg or Cloud Kettle. The portion of how much is the strategy and the advising for me, that is what most of the clients are paying for in the context of Greg being part of their engagement. And I do quite a bit of that work and I do a very significant amount of work. You know, ironically, my busiest time of the year tends to be September because that's where our large publicly traded companies are planning out what their budget cycle is going to look like in 2022. And I'm spending a lot of time with those CMOs and CROs, helping them plan what their roadmap of sophistication will be for sales and marketing operations. And these are the new solutions you'll need in order to level up in these areas. If you want to focus on EMEA, you're going to have to have this consideration of multiple currencies, different tax exposures. You might have to look at a solution for that. Um, You now have to start to think about uh, multilingual abilities in your marketing automation platform and, you know, a lot of complicated stuff like that. And then also resourcing and having discussions around, well, should it be a hub and spoke model where you train these people in each theater, how to work within your marketing automation platform, because they'll understand the language. Do you need to invest in a third-party translation service, or should you be doing a centralized model because maybe you're focusing on English countries only and you can really service this with a tight group in the US. So that's Greg, big brain stuff, so to speak. In parallel to that, there's a large team here who's very focused on some of that in the context of the specific platform. So rather than being cross-platform, somebody who will come up with a data warehouse and, and BI reporting solution for campaign attribution, like very specific, narrow thing. Uh, but then probably 50% of the value, uh, if you want to look at it in terms of kind of billables, would be very hands-on keyboard, putting these very sophisticated solutions in place. So Salesforce architects and marketing cloud architects and you know people who can build data warehouses and things like that. Fascinating. You start with the overall strategy and then help to operationalize, working closely with those CMOs and CROs. Key responsibility too in all of this is the creation of reports and dashboards and the ability to monitor is what we put in place successful. I'd like to dive into what advice you might have for operations professionals to build maybe some of those effective dashboards and reports for that C-suite. Since you work and partner with them, we'd really love your insight on that. I mean, if we're to look at what we normally see versus what succeeds, I think what we normally see for most companies, because they're on a specific maturity trajectory, is most organizations are doing platform by platform block and tackle reporting. So this stuff gets reported on in Salesforce because that's what sales operations wants. This stuff gets reported on in Google Analytics. This stuff gets reported on in the marketing automation platform. And what happens when you have to do that executive level or C-suite level pipeline council or you know planning activities and things like that, what happens is Four different people are trying to cram their individual platform itemed reports into this deck, etc. It's very manual. 
It's painstaking, takes a lot of staff time. Where we see what I would call the mature organizations, uh, what they achieve. And maturity, you know, there's some very, very, very big enterprises who are not mature in this realm, and there's some very small companies that are. But in general, the mature ones are pushing this data into a data warehouse and or some of it might directly go into a BI platform, but usually a lot of it's going into a data warehouse. You've got a layer on top of that of business intelligence with something like Tableau. And maybe in between, you also have a CDP layer as well with something like Segment or Salesforce's CDP. But in that BI model, what you've got as maturity, if you want to look at a crawl, walk, run strategy in this, walk is we have a single dashboard that the C-suite, both CRO, CMO, CEO, they can look at this dashboard. It's maybe not real time, once a day is fine, but it's automated in terms of how it refreshes. People don't have to go calculate this all the time. And it includes that end-to-end pipeline. And it has the ability for them to answer their own questions. And this is where doing it by hand really falls down is these people are generally fairly intelligent. They did not get to be CMO or CRO of a large company by not being smart. And they have specific questions and they're also busy. And having them have to come to you with their specific questions of, hey, why does this one look this way? Is this because of the fact that we're soft in France this quarter? Or what, you know, why is this number changing here? Is this because of us attending Dreamforce? Or what is happening here? You know, having that centralized dashboard that A, everyone agrees on the metrics. So the CMO, the CRO, the person who built the dashboard, everybody agrees that this is the definition of an MQL and, and this is the MQL number. Uh, and when you're doing it separately in the marketing platform and the Salesforce and these other platforms, what happens is you have three different definitions of MQL generally, or at the very least, the reporting is running at different times. So you will have three people come to a meeting with the MQL number being 300, 290, and 310, depending on when in the day they ran the number. So you really want that centralized place. This is what an MQL is. This is what pipeline is. This is what commit is. And it's on that dashboard. And because everybody sees the same one, that is the number. That is the Bible. The benefit of that also, though, is that, assuming you've built it properly, is you give that ability for them to click down and answer their own questions. So... What a CMO needs to know is, are we going to generate enough pipeline for sales to hit their number in two quarters? If we're not going to generate enough pipeline for sales to hit their number this quarter, that's not a marketing problem. Marketing can't fix that. Marketing might be able to allocate additional resources to advertising and other avenues to fix a pipeline problem in two quarters. They want to be able to do that, but they need to be able to click down into it and see, okay, we actually have a 10% pipeline gap, but that pipeline gap is not in America. In fact, we have more than enough pipeline in America. That pipeline gap is specific to Germany and France. And the ability for the CMO to click down and see that means that they can A, answer that question. They're much less frustrated that way, more efficient. They can communicate. Uh, They can answer questions in a meeting. Uh, when the CEO, CEO asks what's going on. But more importantly, is they can start to self-answer and make educated decisions around, okay, 
had I only been able to see this at a broad view, I might have allocated a spend in America because that is the cheapest, most efficient place for us to get leads. But I can see it's actually France and Germany. And my ability to see that means that I immediately understand that generating more leads in America is not going to work because French and German AEs cannot follow up with these people. So what I need to do is I need to allocate resources to an event that we're going to hold in Germany and an event we're going to hold in France, and we're going to dump a lot of event dollars into this thing. Similarly, you've got the CRO. They need to be able to understand, okay, I'm going to hit my total number for the quarter, but by double-clicking down in that, I can see that APAC is overachieving, so I don't need to worry about that. In fact, if anything, I might want to heavy up on hiring in that region in a way I didn't plan to. But also I can see that America is strong, but we are missing our number on major industries, including airlines, automotive, and travel tourism. And so maybe we re need to reallocate the AEs that sit on those accounts to other accounts, but also they're not going to hit their number. And people who are at smaller companies and maybe not as mature in their career, they don't understand that hitting the company number is not the only thing that matters because if you hit the company number but a sector or a region is starved you're going to lose all those amazing salespeople because they get paid based on achieving a number and if they're not getting any pipeline they know they're not going to achieve it and they're going to go somewhere else so it's a much more complex problem than people think of and you really need to be able to give the marketing and sales leadership that ability to click down and delve down and you can't do that just in Salesforce. You can't do that just in the marketing automation platform. You need a BI solution that can pull all that data together from the end-to-end -end life cycle into one place. And then once you have that consensus of this is what an MQL is, this is what our pipeline is, this is how we measure this, and you've got that dashboard built, it's very easy to start to take that and clone it and segment it for the people down from that. So it's very easy to say, okay, we've got this, senior leadership agrees on all of it, clone it, take it a level down. This is marketing's specific dashboard. Clone it again, take it a level down. This is demand gen's specific dashboard. But by cloning it each time and taking it a level down, and how all those things are calculated, and so you know it's going to stay consistent across the organization. Makes a lot of sense. So I love the perspective of really getting at defining those metrics. What are the questions that, the, say, the CMO needs to answer on a weekly basis or giving the executives the ability to, to drill in and know that the strategy is being executed? Because at the beginning of the year, right, they're allocating spend in these different areas. So is it working? Are we getting what we needed out of this? So that really resonates with me. I guess just I'd love to go back, though, and just the process. So, okay, we've talked about what can be on those dashboards, how we cascade them, but you start off by saying pulling everything into a data warehouse. So if I'm an ops professional that's been tasked with helping to build these dashboards, how do you even get started with pulling that data together? Any ad advice? Do you hire a company to pull that together? What's the best path? I think that largely depends on what your internal resources are and what your culture is. So a lot of organizations that will have a data warehouse. They might have multiple data warehouses, but they don't have a data warehouse that's got marketing and sales data in it. So they've got data warehouses that have a lot of product data or other things. You don't want probably that data warehouse because there's going to be, it's going to be really difficult to be nimble and get to do things in it. So in that context, with how cheap 
spinning up a Google BigQuery instances as an example, spinning up an AWS instance, spinning up an instance of Snowflake with how cheap that is. Often the most expedient solution for that revenue operations person is to, you know, start to deploy one of those in a crawl, walk, run phase. You know, you're not going to get it all immediately. Um, but there's native connectors for everything that you're going to want to push in there as a RevOps professional. You know, BigQuery and Snowflake in particular, there's going to be an automatic connector for how you ingest Google Analytics data, marketing automation data, Salesforce data. That is all just going to natively be able to occur. You may want to put an ETL layer on top of that, but initially, I don't think you even need that complexity. And then, yeah, you've got your instance of Tableau on top of that. And depending on whether you use the traditional version of Tableau or what used to be called Einstein, but is now uh, Tableau CRM, it's embedded in Salesforce, you can even take a lot of that reporting because sales will push back and say, well, we do our reporting in Salesforce. And you can say, no problem. And you can just make those Tableau dashboards appear in Salesforce, and they won't necessarily know or have to understand the difference. It's there in the platform they use every day, and that's what matters. I think you start small, and you start with marketing automation, Salesforce, maybe Google Analytics, in an easy-to-spin-up data warehouse with some native connectors, and your BI layer on top of that. And you probably have Tableau. And you can get BigQuery with your very modest expense, allowable expense item on your credit card. And you, you can be fast with that. And, you know, not that you shouldn't seek IT's approval, but most of these platforms have already been approved by IT. Your organization already has blanket approval for a Google blanket license across everything. Um, you know, Tableau is already in place and being used. These are broadly understood and recognized platforms, and they're probably already running. And then from there, it's just being fast. Because once you demonstrate that first dashboard, that for the first time in your company's history, sews together all these reports that used to take 30 days to produce and show them updating, people are not going to be as worried about the other stuff and you'll get blessing for it later. But the first time you go to the CMO and CRO and be like, hey, I know this used to take 30 days. And if you had a question, it took seven days to get back to you on it. Here's what it looks like. Anytime you click on this, it's in relatively real time and you can double click down as far as you want to burrow on this data. That will solve and take care of some of the other questions. Brings up another question as the team has had the requests and you have the metrics, you know what's being asked, you've just been doing it manually. So would your advice be, you know, do a rapid prototype, pull it together, show them something and then iterate, take a stab at it? Yep, definitely. First of all, you can go online and find 80 templates of what a pipeline review council uh, you know, dashboard should look like. And if you can't message us, we'll show you. It's, it, it is, I mean, every, every CMO and CRO is going to come with a bias of what they want to see, and that's fine. But you can show them an MVP, like a minimal viable product, Without going and getting all that, you as a revenue operations professional should be at the level where you understand what they need to see in that top-level dashboard. And if you don't, Google it. But it's not rocket science. The hard part is not building the reports and dashboards they need. The hard part is getting everybody to agree on what the measurements actually are. And in almost every interview I do with organizations, when I talk to them about how we're going to go down this road, one of the questions I ask is like, what is the definition and how do you calculate an MQL? And somebody will immediately jump in and give a response and they'll be very definitive. And two other people will immediately say, 
Uh, most of the time, but actually there's these other three scenarios. And what you find out and what they realize in that call is, oh, we actually do not have an agreed upon definition of what an MQL is. And then if you ask what an SQL is, it's the same thing. And if you ask how lead score is calculated, it's the same thing. You know, at what point is a record considered ready for sales to work? At what point is something committed pipeline? People think there is a definitive answer. And in that individual person's head, there is. But what they find out in broader conversations is there is many variations of that. That is the part that takes time. But you don't need to have ironed that out for the MVP. What you need to demonstrate in the MVP is that you can visualize it, show it near real time. And then you can get into the, I guess, consensus building later on what each of those, you know, what is the exact calculation for this metric? Oh, that makes sense. Get it to one clear definition everybody works with. And does that mean they may have to change a little bit about how they're reporting what they're doing to create one definition, one perspective? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes what that exercise generates is that in Salesforce, it's being done one way in marketing cloud or Pardot or Marketo, it's being done another way and it's being reported on a third way. And the change that has to happen is in two platforms, something has to change in order to sync it with how it's actually be done in the third platform. And that can be challenging. I mean, the, the most difficult one around that is attribution. So attribution is the most difficult problem in building consensus between sales and marketing. And it is, I've been doing this for, I don't know, well, let's generously say well over a decade. And that is a, let's not say fight because that seems counterproductive, but that is a ongoing source of friction between almost every CMO and every CRO is, was the credit for this sale at the end of the day, was it the outreach of a salesperson or was it marketing's effort? And People think it's much more clear cut than it is because sales will say, nobody, you know, a webinar generated this, but nobody followed up with this person in a hundred days and we never heard from them. And then a BDR reached out, that should be sales getting credit. And maybe it should. Uh, marketing would say, sales created a new lead, that SDR never did anything with it. And 200 days later, we sent them a nurture email and they came to our website because they saw an ad and downloaded something. And then that engaged them uh, with another salesperson. Should marketing get credit for that? Should sales get credit for that? It's actually pretty complicated. And so attribution is the big, sticky, difficult one. And you know, our recommendation to our clients is generally, look, you need two forms of attribution. You have a very brutal first touch or last touch model, although generally I would recommend first touch. It is unbelievably harsh. It is clear cut. There is no questions. Everybody understands that's how it works. That is what you report at at the C-suite level. Because anything less than that, you get into a negotiation between marketing and sales on who gets credit for what, and it's not good. And also, anything that's less clear cut than that a third person has to be brought into the room to explain the model that generated it. And the minute that that conversation has to occur, everybody is lost. So at that level, your form of attribution needs to be incredibly black and white, generally first touch. Uh, Salesforce calls it the four horses model. So those four horses being marketing gets credit, which is, you know, it was advertising, it was inbound, it was events. You've got partner channel, you've got BDR outbound, and then you've got cross-sell, upsell of existing clients. And those are your four legs on that stool. And everything 
there is a very clear mechanism within Salesforce that flags every one of those records based on their lead source as being one of those four things. And that is what is reported on as the attribution model of uh, at the C-suite level. And what that looks like is when you're doing your annual planning as the CMO or CRO and who's going to own what, there's four numbers that need to be owned. And those four numbers are partner channel, BDR outbound, marketing inbound, and then your cross-sell upsell. Those are the four numbers. And those numbers are allocated across those groups. And it might be, hey, marketing is responsible for a pipeline number that is 5 million. And that is anything that is this pure first touch thing. Partner channel is responsible for this. BDR outbound is responsible for this. Cross-sell upsell, which might be customer success depending on the organization is responsible for this. And then at a more sophisticated organization, you're going to carve that out a layer further, which is marketing's number is $5 million, which is 50% of our total pipeline. Marketing's number is $5 million. But of that number, 80% of the company's total SMB number is marketing because marketing is very good at generating SMB and only 20% is going to be mid-market and enterprise. Conversely, that BDR outbound targeted account, named account thing, that is going to be 90% uh, or whatever that number is going to be of our enterprise named account number because really marketing can support that and do a lot of round supporting an ABM strategy and helping that happen. But at the end of the day, from a first touch strategy and attribution model, that's really going to be a sales effort because it's going to be that person making that outbound call. So you have to have two layers in that grid. It's a four by four matrix of those four horses. But within that, you're further breaking it down between SMB, mid-market, enterprise, or however you turn those in, in your organization. Oh, I love the simplicity because there's so much you need to manage. What is that key metric and making sure you align? And then, you know, the layer beyond that is you do need a multi-touch attribution model, but that is generally for marketing's purposes. And the mistake a lot of revenue operations people make is that they build a beautiful machine. And I have a great admiration for these machines because I like to build beautiful machines too. And you've got this amazing system where, uh, you know, you can do a U-shape attribution model, but if you want, you can look at it as a W-shape attribution model, and we can do all these fancy things as marketers. And that helps us optimize our marketing efforts, but you cannot explain that and have somebody to digest that at the C-suite level, not because they're not smart enough. They are. It's because they don't have time, and this is not an area they need to be delving into. So you still need that multi-touch attribution model, but that is not for the C-suite. That is for individual groups within the marketing organization starting to better model what they're doing. So, hey, we want this U-shaped attribution curve because we're going to invest a lot getting the lead and prepping them and nurturing them and getting them ready for sales. So we want to MQL them. Then we're going to take a little break. Sales is going to do some stuff. We might do some nurture emails, but we're not going to invest a lot of advertising dollars necessarily. And then when that opportunity is created, that is when we want to start retargeting those people with video case studies showing uh, customer testimonials. And that's when we really want to saturate this person's experience uh, with brand marketing in order to you know, help sales get them over that final mile. And maybe that's where as marketers, we're investing money in these very intimate events where these people who are kind of close to closing big deals are being wined and dined, you know, at a Salesforce adjacent event. And marketing should get some credit for that. And you want that built into your attribution model. It just doesn't work at that C-suite level. So you do need that beautiful machine. The mistake people make is they try to use that because they 
think it's much closer perfect and it's more sophisticated, which in some ways it is, they try to make that a proxy for how the C-suite is going to look at things. And that does not work. Uh, and that generally results in a bunch of people being very frustrated and saying they don't trust marketing is reporting in that attribution model. It's kind of the end result of that. Very interesting. Makes a lot of sense. So we talked about some happy paths. You know, you probably have a lot of those detailed reports and they are beautiful things, but too sophisticated for the C-suite. So bubbling up to those core core metrics. On that journey to create that C-suite dashboard, any pitfalls to watch out for? Gotchas? The biggest one is what we've talked about already, which is don't try to build the perfect end dashboard, what you need to start with is that MVP. And once you demonstrate what they can do with it, it's for almost every organization we work with, it's a big level up from what they have already because nobody ever has time to do this. And so it's starting there and showing them what the future could be. And they're smart folks. They'll figure that out very quickly and they will allocate time and resources to making it better. So that's where you need to start. If you get stuck in the mode of having it perfect when you show it to them, it won't be because every CMO comes with a very specific mental model of what they want to see. And every CRO comes with a very specific mental model of what they want to see. And if you try to guess what that is, you just spend six months spinning your wheels. It's much better to show them something so that you can demonstrate it can be done. And they will very clearly tell you what they want to see instead. That's the biggest pitfall. Thank you. Any other pointers or takeaways on this topic? The other one would be that you need to keep it maintainable. And so one of the traps with building the beautiful machine is that you are the only person who understands, A, how the beautiful machine works and what it measures. And that is a very, very problematic scenario. And you may, in your mind, and I have fallen into this trap, believe that making a perfect attribution model that is so complex that only you understand that can perfectly predict what's going to occur is more important than a simple model that many people understand. And it's not because people will not use one they do not understand. And so if you can't explain in a one minute soundbite what this is measuring and how to the other groups that are going to use it, it's not going to work. And I end up on a lot of calls where people say, hey, our attribution is garbage and our marketing reporting doesn't work and nobody trusts it. And we dig in and then we talk to the person who built it and we're like, wow, this is incredibly sophisticated. What's actually happened is you are very bad at communicating this. The model is correct. And so that's the trap. It's, it's much better to build something that can be explained. And that is being able to explain it and having an 80% confidence rate and not being able to explain it and being too complex and having a 90% confidence rate. The 80% confidence rate is way better. That is just the fundamental world we live in because everything's going to change within it every quarter anyways, and you're always going to have to be rebuilding it. The other one is that other people have to understand how to maintain it because you may be okay with the fact that you're the only person who understands how to maintain it. And you have to go press the button every morning and remember to do it. If you don't, no leads get distributed, nothing gets measured. That's fine. But CMOs don't like that very much. And if you want to earn their trust and mature in your role, you have to understand that part of maturity is understanding you have to build maintainable and sustainable systems. And some revenue operations people are very bad at the maintainable, sustainable part. They're very good at the beautiful machines part. They're very bad at sustainable and maintainable. 
And in today's world, your savvy CMOs and CROs are going to be very suspicious of that because they know that you are a highly sought after resource. And they also know that they're probably going to be replacing you every 18 months because there's so much demand in the market for people like you. And if that's the case, nobody likes things that only one person understands. And in many cases, you're better off airing towards something that's an off-the-shelf solution that you customize than trying to build it from the ground up. So we have a lot of clients who try to build attribution solutions because they're like, oh, you know, visible and uh, these other solutions, they're really expensive and we can do it as well internally. And you can, but then you're the only person who understands how it works. And your leadership team would probably rather you spend a little extra and you buy something off the shelf that the next four people who get hired already know how to use because as an example, it's visible and that is you know, one of the two primary solutions in the market. And is visible bulletproof? No. Does it have a lot of flaws? Yes, definitely. Is it maintainable? Almost certainly. Is it going to stop working if somebody leaves? Also true. Or not true. It will not stop working just because somebody leaves. So people really underestimate how concerned their leadership teams are about that stuff. And I think it would really shock people how often that comes up as a concern. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that advice. My key summaries from this or takeaways that I think are, are super key take back to, to my organization, even some of our customers. One is a driving adoption across the organization. You could build all these beautiful, wonderful models, but if you don't have anybody else using them to make business decisions, you're not really going to be successful in the long run in helping the business to grow. The other thing you just hit on, being scalable and maintainable is also just super important. It might be an 80-20. You're not going to get all of the things that you want. It's more important to be thinking about that scalability of the, the solution. Two key things, you're building things that get adopted by your audience, including the C-suite, and make sure that what you build can be maintained and scaled. Definitely. And trusted. I mean, the other thing that people really underestimate is, well, I built these dashboards and reports, but this team is not using them. And what they don't understand is that the reason those teams are not using them is that they don't trust them. And so, if, again, it goes back to being able to explain them, putting annotations and really clear insights into the dashboard. So here is your report on MQLs. Below that, this is exactly how an MQL is calculated. Here is our report on pipeline. This is exactly how this is calculated. And just making that stuff there for those end users, because what you want to do is pull people in who have an itch to scratch. So these people have questions, they have an itch, self-enable them to scratch it. Don't make them come to you to find out the answer. And the more you do that, the more they will start using something and they'll get hooked and they'll need it. Excellent. Drive adoption and usage of what you've built. And that should be your ultimate success criteria. If nobody's going to your dashboards, they're continually coming to you. You have to continue to answer questions. You're probably not there yet. Is that a proof point? I think it's a proof point. I think the more likely scenario is they're not using it and they're building reports on their own, which is much more dangerous. That's even worse. So that's the thing you're watching out for. But regardless, a good health metric is how often is this thing getting refreshed? And in most cases, depending on the platform, you can actually see who's refreshing it and who's using it. And that's your, I mean, that's your litmus test. Yeah, I love it. Thank you, Greg. This was wonderful. I have a couple closing questions for you. Uh, the first is, what advice would you give to someone who's just about to start in their first operations role? So 
I think jumping in is very important and you need to demonstrate some quick and early wins and you should do that. But spending some time either with a third party or yourself and auditing what exists today, that is what's going to shape your roadmap. Because if once you get into it and you just start working, there's a point at which about a month and a half in, your day is full and there's no ability to go back and examine what happened before. So either bringing in a third party or doing it yourself, you need to take a snapshot of exactly what exists today. And then you build out your roadmap based on that. And part of building out that roadmap based on that is then at your quarterly review, at your six month review, at your one year review, what you're able to say is, here's the snapshot of how things existed when I showed up. And here's where we are today. We could not do this. We can do this now. We have this report placed now, et cetera. Because when you're in that revenue operations role, basically what people remember you did is the value you delivered within the last 14 days. Or more importantly, all the things that made people angry in the last seven days. So you got to go in there. You got to get that snapshot. You got to get that audit of what you have. And then you build out your roadmap. You get some consensus. And also having that roadmap allows you to get funding for certain things. But then you have that thing that you can refer back to of, this is where we were. This is where we're at today. And I think that's really important. And then I think the other one is, you know, once you start rolling, MVPing things and getting stuff into that crawl phase so that you're demonstrating value very quickly. Again, people do not remember, and I'm not saying this is fair, it's profoundly unfair, but people don't remember what happened for a very long period of time because stuff is moving very quickly in the revenue operations world. You know, today you're being asked, why isn't your attribution better? And tomorrow you're being asked to deploy an APM strategy within the next 30 days. And, uh, you know, two months after that, it'll be, we're not doing ABM, we're now doing this. And why haven't you got that done yet? So you've got to have that demonstrating those quick wins and doing that with that MVP approach and always positioning it clearly. So the mistake some people will make is in their head, they understand it's an MVP, but they're not telegraphing that. So in every one of those meetings, when you're doing the requirements gathering, and you're talking about what you're going to do, you're always saying, we're deploying this as a crawl, walk, run approach. Crawl is going to be what we deploy in the first 60 days. This is what we're going to look like. Hey, we all know what a minimum viable product is. This is a minimal viable product. Anything over and above this, I'm putting this in a phase two bucket over here, still here. I wrote it down. You watch me. But this is what we're deploying in this crawl phase. Brilliant. And final question, who in the world of operations would you most like to take to lunch? So I would not take a single person because this is a very complicated world. I would take a table. I, I would take a group of people to the progress or somewhere like that. I would, I would book a table. It's going to be like five or six of us. Definitely Renaud Bazette, who runs all things marketing operations at Splunk. He's probably the smartest marketing operations person I know. And I literally do this for a living. So that is a, you know, a lofty item. So I would take him. I would bring Lauren Vaccarello, who was running all things digital advertising at Salesforce when I started working there. And she's the one who taught me the horseman model uh, or the four horses model as it existed at Salesforce. She went on to some really great roles at Box and Talend very, very brilliant acquisition marketer and just overall marketing leader. I would bring Maura Ginty, who uh, most recently was CMO at a company called Mode. And she is the best person I've ever met on tying together. Here's the beautiful machine people. 
and how they measure things and build things. And here is what the CMO wants. And she is a seamless interface in getting those two groups to work together and understand each other and just in general, a CMO whisper. And then Ursula Irut, she is unbelievable at really amazing content strategies, ABM strategies, and helping companies put together all those bits and pieces on how they execute on this stuff. Because companies really want to do ABM, or they may really want to do a content marketing strategy, or they really want to do these things. Uh, They're actually very bad at doing those things specifically. Those are probably the two things that companies do worse out of anything. And she has just got a incredibly well-honed touch on how to execute on those. And those are all, when you think about it, it's marketing operations specifically, not necessarily sales operations, but those are the disciplines that you need in the room. And each one of those people would be one of the top. I want to be at that lunch. So I'm back on a plane. Exactly. All right. We'll plan that for a future date. Thank you so much, Greg. Really appreciate you being on today. Thank you for having me. The Upstars podcast is brought to you by Lean Data. To find out more about us and our suite of Salesforce native products for marketing, sales, and revenue operations, head to leandata.com. And then make sure to search for Opstars in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Opstars and Lean Data, thanks for listening.